Welcome and thank you for joining us. This is Listen Albany, the capital city's cultural heritage podcast. I'm Kara Macri with Historic Albany Foundation. This is the fourth episode of our Listen Albany podcast series, Fragments, a discussion delving into the interesting and unique ways in which old fragments of buildings continue to survive and thrive. With us this evening to talk about building fragments they've encountered are two of our usual suspects, architectural conservator Bill Brando and architectural historian Walter Wheeler. Tonight's discussion stems from many conversations where we've digressed to the sentence, well, you know, there's this random building part over at this other location we were talking about. After many, many of these conversations, it occurred to us that there's this untold story here of parts of buildings that are left from earlier buildings, whether it's the majority of a building behind a quote-unquote modernized 19th century facade or a single wall of an 18th or 17th century building. There are lots of fragments left behind that we never really talk about. Uh, as we planned this discussion, we realized that the story is really even bigger than just the building parts that remain in situ, but also the parts that are salvaged and reused in other buildings, sometimes intentionally, sometimes not. Um, tonight, we'll get into some examples of both. So with that said, we'll move right into everything. So. Some of the buildings uh, where parts remain in situ, how do these parts kind of survive? Uh, and what are some of the good, good examples of some of the oldest buildings that you've encountered? Do you want me to hit the, uh, well, so one of the buildings that I think got this started was um, in talking about 48 Hudson, there's also a discussion to be had related to that to uh, 136 South Pearl Street. I got the address right, that's good. Um, which has a mouse toothed wall um, which is sandwiched between two buildings. Um, actually, it's, yeah, I guess it's sandwiched between two buildings, but it's actually visible from both sides, which is pretty neat. Um, so it's visible from both 136 and 138, or at least was when they were redoing the, you were with us, right, Kara, when right. we walked through. Um, you could see it from 138 when they were redoing the apartments on that side. That was the what was Pagliacci's, 136 was a law firm, I don't remember the name, but it's for sale now. I think when um, we went into it, we kind of crashed one of their open houses. Yeah, so it's a shared wall, so it doesn't belong to either one building or the other, it's between the two. And that's an example of just a pragmatic, it's, it's not really a salvage per se, it was just someone was building a building, they needed a wall in that exact location, and they built a wall around that wall, basically on top of that wall. Um, it was never, in either of those two buildings that were built later meant to be seen, but why tear down a perfectly good brick wall? Um, but um, it, when it was uncovered, I believe it was the 80s, mm -hmm. 1980s? Yeah, like about 1981, something right. like that. They left it exposed because it, it's um, so rare and interesting, and I believe it dates to about 1710. So there's been talk, well, is that really the oldest building in Albany as opposed to 48 Hudson? The issue there is it is just one wall and there's nothing else but that wall, whereas 48 Hudson has more than just the one architectural component. So or, since there aren't any visuals, can you say what a mouse tooth wall oh. is for people that don't already know what, what that is? Good point. Um, so a mouse tooth wall, if you've seen images, but see this relies on an image uh, as well to an extent. Uh, James Eight's views of Albany um, are quite well known. They're the, they were done in about 1800. They show basically Dutch Albany. Um, houses with peaked gables, and they have this sawtoothed edge along the, the side, which is just a way of finishing a wall because to get a saw to, to get a brick to have a slanted edge, you either have to fabricate it that way or cut it after the fact. If you cut it after the fact, bread is like a bread. Bricks are like bread, the outside's crunchier than the inside, so if you leave that softer piece exposed, it will deteriorate. So if you leave the squared end, 
facing upward and have that softer cut end facing in, it'll last much longer. If you do that, you get a little sawtoothed edge along the, the side of the building. So it's a, it's a decorative feature. Um, if you go to Amsterdam, it's interesting, and, and other places in Holland, but Amsterdam in particular, you see that, but never, well, in Amsterdam, you almost never see it on the front of the buildings, but you see it on the back of the buildings because it's kind of a, a step down. In Albany, it was all over the place. The higher-end buildings had stepped gables, but this was a... In this uh, region, the... the uh Mouse toothing or tumbling, as they also called it, uh, was used into probably the 1760s uh, in more rural areas, but it all but evaporated in the first quarter of the 18th century in urban areas. Well, and they must have liked it because they used it even on gambrel roofed houses that the bricks weren't projecting through beyond the roof mm -hmm. edge. Yeah, there's a good so example. It, it just became a decorative feature. Yeah. The Yates House in uh, Schenectady is a good example of what this feature looked like originally on. Uh, the house that's on South Pearl Street. Um, now originally, too, the uh, the house on South Pearl Street would have been, um, I think it was probably about a story and a half uh, house. And uh, there are images, there's one uh, woodcut view that shows the building before it was removed. And uh, it probably faced uh, north at that time since when it was constructed uh, Pearl Street, South Pearl Street didn't exist at the time, and so it would have been oriented toward uh, the creek that was immediately to the north and right, was so subsequently filled in. So it's likely the back wall of the building mm -hmm. as opposed to the front wall. I could have made that clear. Well, it's also clear, too, because um, <clears throat> it incorporates a, uh, a part of a uh, chimney, uh, the back wall, that, that uh, um, is a typical feature in the, that type of house. But yeah, I mean, that's, that's sort of the pragmatic end of it. That was not done for any kind of aesthetic or historical reason. That was just done. And, and there's other examples of that, both in situ, but also um, just reusing sal salvaged architectural elements. There's kind of two ways to do that. You do that for aesthetic consideration, or you do it because, well, I tore down a building and I've got this good building material, um, which could be bricks or stone or wood or whatever. Uh, when it happens with party walls, very frequently it's it's the case uh, that um, in the early contracts, uh, in order to in order to gain extra space, perhaps a foot uh, extra interior space, you'd you'd essentially make an agreement with the uh, landowner next door to have the walls of your building straddle uh, the um, uh, the lot line and 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 make it stout enough to be able to be used for constructive purposes uh, by people on both sides of the wall. And that's why some of these survive. There are additional ones on um, uh, what was the, um, the Hampton Inn on the, uh, the east side. Uh, when they took down the Dow building, they, were, they uncovered a, an early wall that was there. I believe they left it mostly in place. And um, on uh, Green Street, there's another example of what looks to be a, an 18th century wall, a, a piece of it uh, incorporated into a building uh, that predates uh, the structure that's still standing next to it. When, and a, a more pertinent one, which isn't as old a wall, but um, Jay's building on Eagle Street, where they tore the two buildings down next to it. If you look at that wall, that wall was finished when, when they could get to it. And then the top part of the wall, which uh, lines up with the cornice was finished after they could no longer get to it because the you can see the those mortar joints aren't struck. So I think in that case, that's an 1870s, 80s building. 
and I think they reused a wall that probably wasn't all that much older, um, but it does look like most of that wall is older than the facade of the house that's still there in the, the top part of that wall. And that's over on Eagle so, Street, right across yeah, from the governor's mansion. Yeah, so I mean, it's kind of all over, not just in oh, downtown. Oh, yeah, mm -hmm. no, I think, I mean, it's probably more places than we, you, we even know. Like around Washington Park, um, almost every house now facing Washington Park is a second house. Most of those houses, um, I shouldn't say most, many of those houses were wood frame probably don't incorporate much. Um, but the ones that were brick that got a new, you know, facade, but some of them are an entirely new building that could easily incorporate one of the party walls. There are also a number of uh, buildings that incorporate earlier structures, but that they're just hiding more or less in plain sight, but behind uh, more recent elevations. Uh, we were talking uh, at one of our conversations about one of the buildings, a fire station on Spring Street. Yeah, so... Uh, the city historian Tony Opalka has been working on a history of firehouses, um, and he and I got talking about there was a firehouse in the 1876 Atlas facing um, Washington Avenue, which was where, to where Umana is now, right? Yes, it was where Umana, the restaurant, is now, and directly behind that, there's a small house. Originally, the firehouse faced Spring Street, but they moved it to Washington Avenue when they needed a, a larger turning radius. And looking at the house on Spring Street now, you would never think that that had ever been a fire station. And this is a fire station in the 1840s, early 50s. Um, but it, it does have a peaked roof. It is an older house, but it has an 18, 18, a 1920s-ish, maybe even 30s facade. Um, more research has to be done to that, into that, but that may well be um, the oldest or one of the two oldest firehouses in the, in the city. Um, but it, again, looks nothing like a firehouse because it got an entirely new facade. And there's a lot of, I mean, yeah. on, on Washington Park, some of the houses didn't just come down, they just got a new facade. Um, so that's, that's pretty. Yeah, and across the city, uh, as part of WPA work, uh, all of the, just about all the standing uh, firehouses of the mid and late 19th century, excluding some of the later ones like... Um, like Marcus Reynolds' house on uh, firehouse on uh, Delaware Avenue, uh, but through the WPA, they were all uh, refaced and upgraded. Uh, and um, yeah, the yellow brick. Yeah, the yellow brick. You see so them all over. On, they all kind of look the same. They're yep. kind of blah. There's one by Wolf Spear Garden. That Spear one is an older is building that's refaced. There's one on is a Clinton Avenue, and then there's one in the corner of. Um, South Swan and maybe it's Elm. Uh, Jefferson. Is it Jefferson? Jefferson? Yeah. And that one there, I believe, is also. Um, an early 1850s firehouse with later additions. Yes. Yeah, I mean, a lot of, the, well, yeah, and the one, I, the one on Clinton, right, <clears> by <throat> the school. Um, yep. Yeah, they were all Victorian firehouses that kind of got de-Victorianized. And the Albany Civic Theater over on, uh, I think it's 2nd Avenue. Yeah. It was an Ernest Hoffman yes. in 1891 uh, that got. Yeah, new facades are. The treatment. Nothing <laughs> new. Yeah. Um, but sometimes they do mask a building that's considerably older. But in terms of just pieces surviving, sometimes that's just done because it's easier. If you're putting a brick wall where you know there's already a brick wall, why not just use part of that brick wall? Yeah, yeah to uh, 52 Washington Avenue, uh, Sanders Architectural Office is in fact an earlier, um, I believe it was built as a house. Uh, but in the uh, early 20th century, it was converted for use as a bank. And... Um, by the third quarter of the 20th century became Harris Sanders' office. Um, and uh, that 
that is a building that probably dates to about 1820, something like that, originally, although uh, it'd be hard to know it except for through the roof line when you look at it sideways. Um, yeah, that's a lot of the older buildings that are hiding around. Uh, the down tube is another one, which actually I think it's, it's three fish because it's the three fish side that's the older building, but that has a, gambr a, a gable roof mm -hmm. to the street, had a central fireplace chimney until a couple years ago. Um, but that's, that may be one of the earliest buildings facing the park. But again, you would never know that just looking at the facade. Um, and if they changed the roof line, you would never know it. <laughs> um, but they didn't in that case. Yeah, such is the case with that, the Hampton Hotel in downtown on Lower State Street uh, that began at least by the early 1820s as an hotel and uh, was uh, added to uh, with the addition of a hall, a, a big public hall on, on uh, an additional upper floor in the early 1850s. And it got a brownstone facade that was subsequently uh, taken off and a new facade was put on uh, designed by Gibson in the 1880s. 80s, and then a few more stories were added on uh, uh, by Marcus Reynolds. Uh, I think at the end, must have been early 20th century when that happened. Um, so yeah, I mean, it's it's almost it, there's a lot of buildings downtown. Yeah. The R.B. Wing Building has like 32 different chunks of older buildings, and then in 1914 got a new facade. It's mm -hmm. it's not unusual. It's just yeah. pragmatic. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, so. There's, there's that aspect of it, and it goes back a very long way um, to, to just leave the city of Albany for a moment. In uh, Bethlehem, we were doing a salvage with Historic Albany Foundation of a federal period farmhouse, um, and there were Dutch beams in the basement, and it wasn't that they had built around the Dutch house because the, build, the beams that were in the basement were first floor beams. They were finished first floor beams, but they just used them because they clearly on that site somewhere had torn down a Dutch house and there were these enormous beams and why not um, use them? Um, so I have a piece of one where you can see where the fireplace uh, setup was um, in my office at work because they were gonna leave them. <laughs> Yeah, from time to time when buildings are renovated in downtown, we can also find pieces of much earlier buildings or whole frames, as in the case of uh, 800 Broadway that was recently renovated. And uh, during the course of that work, it was uh, discovered to uh, include uh, probably circa 1800, 1810 uh, frame that had been raised up by a story uh, in the uh, late 19th century. Uh, to insert a, a first floor level that had commercial space in it. And the upper uh, new two stories uh, were given a new facade. And so the building pretty much was one of those things that was hiding in plain sight until it was recently renovated. Right. Another building uh, like that too um, was um, on um, Sheridan Avenue. It was... Um, was it 57 Sheridan? 67. Like yeah. For, yeah. Um, was it the Boyd printing? 67, yeah. And um, that was uh, taken down as part of a recent uh, condominium conversion of yeah. one of the older uh, factories that was, was there on Sheridan. And um, during the course of its uh, takedown, um, some of us got an opportunity to get in there and, and measure it. And it, it was a, uh, a much older building incorporated into an 1870s uh, row house that had later been turned into apartments. 
um, and the uh, the frame of the oldest part of it, uh, which was a four bay wide house, two stories in height, um, was probably somewhere in the 1790s to maybe very early 18th century, 1800, 1805. And uh, this, this house and the one at 800 Broadway had um, very interesting framing that uh, techniques were used that were kind of a transitional uh, New World Dutch uh, to uh, um, you know, English uh, vernacular architecture. There were some other things found in uh, 67 Sheridan, like a Rumford fireplace, wasn't there? And then was it the framing or parts of... Um, there was an old was window, a Dutch, a Dutch window? window frame. Yeah, yes. that was found in there as yeah, well. Yeah, one of the heavy frames. In the basement, yeah. Yep. yeah. Everything else had been changed out. Um, so, yeah, I mean, Albany, to talk more about the um, the kind of pragmatic reuse of just building materials, um, and this is this is just a personal note, but when I was doing, uh, uh, we have a kitchen wing that was added in the 1980s, and when they did that, it's tiny, and it, so half the kitchen was in the old part of the house and half the kitchen was in the new part, and to make it not two separate rooms, we took out the brickwork, and when we took out the brickwork, we put in a beam in and everything, so it's all standing up nicely, but um, to make it one room, we took out the brickwork, and the inside brick and the outside brick was, you know, 19th century, well, contemporary with the house, but the inside brick was all sorts of things. I've still got pieces, I mean, there were bricks from at least four different periods, mm -hmm. so there must have been, again, a lot of buildings got torn down around the park, they could have been, my first thought was, oh, these must be from the house that was here before, the chimney or whatever. But there were four different periods, so I don't know, um, and, and Wally might know something, if there were people who sold, um, or, you know, old brick, because there would have been a market for that, um, especially on the, in, you know, you're not gonna use it on the outside, because none of it would match. Mm. Um, but some of them were quite small, early bricks. Um, there, there was a longstanding, uh, trade in reused building materials dating back to the 18th century at least. Um, in Early on, uh, these materials were held by uh, the contractors and the carpenters in the city. They were just a mass materials right. that were left over from jobs or collected from teardowns. And so people would have stockpiles that made the, the jobs cheaper for them to complete and they could essentially, you know, pocket the difference in the, the, the cost. Later on, though, in the late and 19th... And no reason not to. I mean, yeah. in terms of the building, it, you know, yeah. in the inside of a wall, the bricks are the bricks. Doesn't yeah. Really... By the late 19th century, there actually was a trade in some of the, the more refined aspects of uh, buildings, such as, um, you know, moldings and, in particular, um, fireplace mantles. Yeah. And so you have um, Marcus Reynolds and... Um, other architects uh, such as Van Geisling, uh, they make notes and, and are on the hunt uh, for, uh, for woodwork and um, other bits and pieces of buildings to incorporate into theirs. Um, and uh, there are notes in Marcus Reynolds's diary about, uh, about meeting specific contractors who he has arrangements with when they find things in, their, in the course of their work and their teardowns. They call him and he goes and looks and see if it's something that he wants and then he buys it on the site. Um. Yeah, because at, at that point, um, they were, there were a lot of essentially federal revival buildings going up and a lot of actual federal buildings in Albany coming down, mm -hmm. so why not use what you could? Yep. Um, fireplace mantles being the most <clears throat> obvious and the easiest to salvage. They just pop right out, no problem. Um, doors, too, you, you see get um, reused. 
Um, one of the biggest, most you mentioned Marcus Reynolds, one of the biggest, uh, most wholesale salvages um, was of the Van Rensselaer Manor um, in 18, that's 1897. I know the buildings that they incorporated pieces were 1897 um, on State Street, the Van Rensselaer Row, which is the, the row of buildings between uh, Willett and Henry Johnson Boulevard that are buff colored brick with the vermiculated front, which looks like worms ate the, it's terracotta, but it looks like. Um, the one closest to Lark Street, which is 385, that had the, not the, well, basically the entire hallway um, from the, the, the main entry hall from the Van Rensselaer Manor, which was built in 1765. Five. So, I was. Other, the right decade. Yeah, other pieces of the house um, were moved to uh, Williamstown and re-erected as a fraternity house. Uh, these included um, parts of the main stairs, some other bits of woodwork, uh, the front door, which uh, was eventually uh, removed uh, down to Howard Townsend's house called Claverick down on Long Island, uh, which also incorporated additional uh, woodwork from, from the house. Other uh, bits and pieces from the house, from some of its later incarnations, uh, say for example, in the uh, early 1840s, it was faced with brownstone uh, from uh, designs by uh, Upjohn. And some of that material has recently been incorporated into the president's house at, at Rensselaer in Troy. Um, yeah, I've heard there's pieces, it, the, the row was built, it was Marcus Reynolds' first uh, commission of any real size, and he had some relation to the Van Rensselaer family, but it was built by the Van Rensselaers the same year they were taking down the, the manor house, so they incorporated pieces. And I've heard there's pieces in other um, parts, mm -hmm. um, but it was 385 um, where they incorporated the largest part. But the interest, another interesting thing about that is it wasn't only taken out of the, re the, the manor house and put into the house on State Street, but shortly, not that long after, 1920, so it would have only been there for 20-ish years. Um, it was acquired by the Metropolitan M Museum of Art because they'd heard that the same time they salvaged the woodwork, they salvaged the historic wallpaper, um, and the Met wanted the wallpaper. And so they, if you go to the Met now, the kind of the central room in the American wing that's um, the period rooms is the Van Rensselaer Hall. They wanted the wallpaper, but they, the, the Met doesn't like to do reproductions, so they wanted the original woodwork to go with it. Um, so they took the woodwork out, and that apartment now has reproductions of the original, um, which is, it looks exactly the same. But if you, if you go to the Met, it's, it's all there. But I don't believe they ever put the wallpaper up. I think the Met had heard they had the wallpaper, they wanted the wallpaper, and they wanted the, the interior to go with it and recreated it there. So that's one that's been reused several times and is now at the Met. Yeah, and uh, again, with uh, Marcus Reynolds to follow up on uh, him, the, uh, his, his career, uh, he uh, continued during his career up until the, the end of uh, his life to incorporate materials from various buildings. Uh, one of his later projects was a uh, renovation of the Albany Academy building in the, in the 1930s, uh, which was happening around the time that he was uh, designing a new Albany Academy building. And in a similar uh, um, procedure, he, he uh, in order to kind of carry some of the flavor of the old building to the new, he had some of the woodwork from the old building, building taken out and put into the main hallway uh, and had it reproduced and installed in the old building. Uh, but there are um, mantles in the old building and in the new building 
uh, which come from various places, one of which I think is from the Van Rensselaer Manor House, uh, I think in the second floor of the old academy building. And there are some <clears throat> mantles that clearly date to the 1830s and 40s that are, that are put in some of the offices of the uh, new academy building. Um, so it's clear he's continuing to, to reuse pieces. There are some, uh, um, if memory serves, in the new academy building, there are also some uh, large pieces of uh, marble um, architectural sculpture which are incorporated into uh, the interior, which I think are European in their origins. And Reynolds uh, did uh, shop on a larger uh, scale, not just in this area. Uh, for example, um, a mantle that he had installed in the city hall in the mayor's office is uh, French from, I think, the 16th or 17th century. And um, he had it um, installed in the mayor's office. Uh, similarly, uh, an, another mantle, a very large and florid style, was put into the National Savings Bank's uh, director's room, but that has since been destroyed. Yeah, Marcus Reynolds, it seems, I mean, Philip Hooker buildings, it seems like there was a lot of salvaging of bits and pieces of his, because there's the bank that they salvaged the entire facade, but there's also um, Albany Med, the doorway. Um, Sorry, I don't know Lancaster who, who did that. Do you know what architect did the, the move? But the Lancaster yeah. Street School, which became Albany Medical College, I believe it was its first home, maybe not its first, but an early home of Albany uh, Medical College, um, when they relocated to where what's now Albany Med, they moved the doorway. I think that's basically Front all the architrave, mm -hmm. not just the door, but the architrave around the door. Um, and you can see that adjacent to a parking lot. It faces not New Scotland, but faces west, kind of along New Scotland. Mm -hmm. um, but and actually, the and uh, in that same sort of uh, thought in the 1870s when. Um, the Mechanics and Farmers Bank, a building that's attributed to Philip Poker. It was a nice uh, square, kind of a cube uh, marble oh, building. Yeah. Uh, when that was taken down, um, they re-erected uh, one of its facades in a modified form out in uh, Calvary Cemetery in Glenmont. And it's uh, the receiving vault it has been since the 1870s. Um, yeah, so I, I didn't even think of that one. And then the, 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 the uh, bank that I know. Yes, I don't forget Carol about the bank on state. <laughs> well, it's such a prominent example. I mean, anyone that's been really downtown, up and down State Street, you see it. And I think most people don't realize that it's a, a totally new building with an old facade on it. So you look at the upper floors and it's, it's very obvious it's an older build or newer building. But the ground level, it, it really looks quite old given the facade. Yeah, and they, they, um, that facade, the original bank wasn't, um, wasn't centered on the block. And so when they decided to retain the facade, they built um, essentially a set of... Uh, tracks, they look like railroad tracks, and they slid the building up on these tracks. Uh, and then um, they, they had, of course, removed the foundation underneath it and um, parts of the first floor, actually, and, and then built, uh, set it on a, a new foundation that was associated with the, um, with the skyscraper that they built at that time. So yeah, this is the, the old state bank, on the, which was near the corner of Pearl, and actually it was closer to the corner of James and State, mm -hmm. and they moved it up the hill to put it in exactly in the middle because when Henry Ives Cobb did the, the, the large building that's there now, which is now Bank of America. Yes, it's a Bank of America. Um, yeah, he wanted it centered, which makes sense, but he had to move, <laughs> move the facade in order to make that happen. But that one, you can still see the, uh, the, the date stone on it 
I think it says 1813? 1803. 1803. Yeah. I had three of the four numbers right. You did. Yeah, that's <laughs> um, but you can see it says Philip Hooker, and it, it has the date. Not, not stellar, but 75%. <laughs> right. 75%. Yeah, it's a passing grade. Passing. <laughs> I think uh, one of the reasons why all the uh, Philip Hooker fragments were being retained in the, the uh, later 1920s and early 30s is uh, particularly because of the work of two architectural historians. Uh, first one, uh, his name was uh, Dykeman, uh, who went around the city and, and did uh, reconstruction drawings of all the standing Philip Hooker buildings at that time. And this was in uh, his work, happened uh, in the 19-teens, and he published them in uh, national magazines at that time. And um, an, another historian, uh, Edward Root uh, published a study on Philip Hooker in 1929, I think it was, and he used a lot of Dykeman's drawings uh, in that work. And um, so it was right there in the middle of kind of honoring Albany's early 19th century architect that, um, that they made some effort to... Uh, well, and they'd lasted long enough that they yeah. were basically then back in style in yeah. terms of someone like Henry Ives Cobb yeah. would like a federal pe period facade and kind of built the building around that idea um, you know, where it wasn't just some ugly old thing um, at that point. So, you know, it, it but, was, but, but we, we, they didn't have quite the preservation um, ethic that we did that they'd save the whole thing. It's like, well, I could use pieces of that, which yeah. obviously we do at the warehouse, um, but they appreciated Philip Hooker's buildings, but, you know, some of them had to make way. It's, it seems somewhat... Uh, laughable now, but Cobb, when he described his design for the building, uh, said that he tried to imagine how Philip Hooker would design a skyscraper. And, and <laughs> that is <laughs> not something that Philip Hooker could have ever imagined. Yeah, I, <laughs> I think so. So, um, additional uh, buildings, I guess. Um, that uh, incorporate pieces when the um, Alfred E. Smith building. Uh, was uh, the site was being cleared? That's right. We promised a mention of the Alfred E. Smith we did, building. Just and a, there it a is. Glancing. <laughs> and um, so uh, there, there was the Fort Frederick Apartments, which um, uh, folks may or may not know had been moved from the corner of that site to their present location, a block away. And that's a whole other story that was pretty well documented. It is a bit of an time. architectural salvage, though. So it it's, is it's yeah. not where it was originally. That's they just true. trucked it. The entire building. A block over and then set it back. Yeah. And they, yeah, they moved that on a, a series of tracks, parallel uh, tracks and skids uh, over a period of time. I, I don't was know. Was it a week or whatnot? I know someone had taken there's photographs and put together a movie yeah, of it, but it was at least a, a week. It, yeah. it went very slowly. Yeah. And um, so on the rest of the site, there was a row of Greek revival houses, and, and these had some, um, some nice woodwork in it. And... Um, uh, an architect who was working in the area at the time. I can't remember who, who it was. Um, oh, I don't remember. Edgar yeah. Wheeler. You're talking was, about, you're talking about um, Washington, yeah, 319 yeah. Washington. It was Edgar Wheeler, but ironically yeah. enough, um, when the building was researched, he was listed as an officer of a bank, and we haven't found any record of him listed as an architect, but yeah. he styled himself as an architect uh, in, um, oh, what was the magazine um, that it was published in? It wasn't Better Homes and Gardens. Um, 
It'll yeah, come back to me I'm later. drawing a blank. Yeah. But I, I, I remember, yeah, and it, it's 1929. Yeah. 30? Yeah, it was published. Did you say his last name was? Wheeler. Yes. <laughs> well, I was wondering if there was a connection. Um, but that's, that's another one where that stuff was in style enough by that time for an architect to say, oh, I can really make something of it. And that, in that house, um, which is uh, 319 Washington, 319. Um, you might know it, it's on Washington Avenue near the uh, firehouse number one. It's um, got two clamshells over the doors. The doors are in the basement. Um, they really did make something of it. I mean, it's quite an interesting building, but, but the, the, uh, the uh, architectural salvage is, is really quite exemplary. I've never seen the article. Um, I but there was also a little um, folly shed sort of thing in the back that incorporated um, Greek revival elements. I don't know if they were from that same salvage, but they, mm -hmm. they basically must have taken from a, a variety of buildings because they're um, pieces that are not, they're not all cohesive, mm -hmm. um, and they really did a, an interesting job of that. One of these but it's basically has built around salvage, which is a bigger, you know, there's not too many where, you know, it's like you put a mantle in or you save a doorway, but this one, the whole house is, is based around salvage. Uh, two other examples of that at actually a much bigger scale. Uh, one of them, uh, I think it was, gee, I think it was in the 20s or perhaps early 30s, Kenneth Gray Reynolds, his house, he was the uh, nephew of Marcus Reynolds, um, his house in Loudonville, which is now part of the um, oh, the college out there, the Siena College. Siena. It's, it's been incorporated into one of the administrative buildings. Uh, and uh, that house uh, incorporates a large number of fragments. Uh, it may have been um, the lion's share of, uh, of Marcus Reynolds's uh, stockpile of materials, for all I know, but it includes a Gansevoort family dining room from Washington Avenue, several mantles, and a number of other pieces, some front door surrounds from Albany houses, um, all into this uh, rather oddly planned uh, building. Um, and then um, a similar job was done for uh, the Sage Estate, which incorporates uh, fragments from the Presbyterian Church in Albany and a number of other major houses that had stood in the city until that time. And so those are really, you know, some of the bigger repositories of some of this material. Um, it, uh, speaking of Loudonville, just remind me, 355 uh, Loudon Road, going so out that same way, yeah. there's not a lot of salvage stuff. It's like a little English cottage. Um, I guess the beams in the living room are supposed to have been salvaged, but they were reworked. Um, but that house has a bunch of Dutch hinges, the Dutch boss hinges, that don't really go with the house at all. But I went around and counted once, and I think they had 10 or 12. I mean, there were quite a few. Um, and and they're, they're all over the place. I mean, they're not, they're not reproductions. They're, they're the real thing. So someone must have just had a collection and was like, let's use them here. Um, yeah, I'm not so, familiar with that one. One of the other larger estates that we'd been talking about was Kenwood and how the original manor house that A.J. Davis had designed was then deconstructed, actually really shortly after it was constructed. Did it last a full 20 years? Because it's, I think, 1842. And then I think um, Wall started building the convent in 1866. So you're the one with the dates. 
don't remember the dates right now. Yeah, but the, the, <laughs> but the, the, the sequence was the, the chapel was built, then the part of the back wing, the house was taken down yeah. after that. So it, it was definitely it was more than piecemeal. 20 years yeah. because, mm. um, by the time they, they took it down. Because it was used, it was only used for a house though for about 10 years because in 1852, Ken would purchase the site. So it was a, a private residence. But yeah, they incorporated... Um, the label molds, the gothic label molds, um, and, other, and fireplaces. Again, those are fun to incorporate. But it's, it's interesting. It's only on the, what is that, the west wing um, that they incorporated because that's, that's more or less the site where the house was. Um, the other parts of the building, each chunk of that has different window surrounds and you know they didn't try to make it all cohesive. Um, so by the time they got to the, the uh, taking the house down, they figured, well, we'll just use these label molds. And they're not even everywhere on that wing. Um, but definitely, the there's sort of a, in the old illustrations of Kenwood, the house, as opposed to um, the, 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 the academy that moved there, there, there's this stepped label mold, which is fairly unusual. And that's on the front of the building now. Um, and then there's definitely something you know, on the side and, and here and there. And I've always speculated that they, they may have used more pieces. There's doors that don't go with anything else in the, mm. the rest of the building, um, which some of which are at Actually, the Actually, they've mostly sold by now. So several yeah. people now own A.J. Davis uh, doors. Uh, they're very narrow, very pointed. But also, I know it was speculated that some of the um, interior design were their uh, built-in bookcases. And that was it one of the mm -hmm. floors or whatnot? One of the parquet floors that, had been that removed? That was or? a bit of a, I think that was more of a rumor than anything. Urban legend. Because the, it, when I went to school there, the rumor was that the head mistresses or headmaster after that floor was from the house but that that was a part of the building that they hadn't really incorporated things mm -hmm. and it was just a I mean it was a lovely parquet floor but I don't think it, yeah. it came out of that out of the house but they're definitely mantles that would be really pretty unlikely for a parquet exactly. floor to be moved but I right. do think the, uh, well, the library bookcases I do think uh, did come from the original house um, just their their level of detail kind of bespoke an earlier 19th century uh, construction okay. date. So there were uh, also- I got, I got three of those at the uh, sale. Uh, the, <laughs> yeah. At the bookcase. The, the auction. And the, um, there were uh, also some pieces of furniture that remained in the house uh, at the time, uh, up until the time it was sold. And I know that um, kicking around the, uh, the site before it was sold also, um, in the north end of the property, there is a large pile of, uh, of marble that had been a facing material from the house that, um, that's kind of in a kind of a sloped area. You know, that includes some decorative details and things like that that weren't incorporated into the building. So they kind of kept that stuff on site, and so it's possible that they, they just mined it over the years for additional pieces as they saw Yeah, fit. it looks like it was a long-term dump heap because at one yeah. point there was one of the voussoirs from the later wing, mm. the marble pieces that was just kind of up there. So, um, but yeah, they, they definitely, you know, they, they, well, they were tearing down a very fancy house that was only 20, 30 years old. So they used what they could. And the Gothic revival nature of the house went with, you know, there's a chapel right next door. The, you know, <laughs> kind of went with the, the feeling they were going for, so um, definitely, definitely worked. But I mean, the, this idea, the, the you know, pragmatically reusing parts of buildings. I mean, 
to some extent, that was pragmatic. I mean, it was aesthetic as well as pragmatic, but you know, it's like, well, we're tearing down this <laughs> nice house that's not very old and not very beat up, so why not um, reuse parts? But you know, that goes way back. I mean, you, you, at the dissolution of the monasteries, all those, you know, you, you, you see the ruins in England, a lot of those, you know, they didn't just fall down. Pieces were trucked away to be incorporated into buildings nearby. Whole villages. Yeah, I mean, it's, but, you know, it's building material. Yeah. It's easier to quarry it from a building, you know, half a mile away than to get it from a quarry 10 miles away. Yeah. So it's not unusual or going, new. Going back even further in Rome, uh, they incorporated bits and pieces and reconstituted chunks of old... Um, say uh, triumphal arches into uh, later ones in the in the two hundreds or or throughout the medieval period, uh, standing structures uh, in Rome and throughout Italy that you see from that period they incorporate decorative bits and pieces from from earlier structures. Oh yeah, they, they, this the notion of using a wall because well if you're going to build a brick wall and there's already a brick wall there why not incorporate part of it? Mm -hmm. In uh, I went to graduate school in York, England, and in York. Uh, the, uh, it was EU Forwick at, uh, originally. Um, it was a Roman settlement, but there's a, there was a Roman fort. And part of the medieval wall, you can see, it's called Multangular Tower, but it's about 12 feet of a Roman tower with about seven feet of medieval um, wall on top of it. Um, so that's you know, no different than you know, the house on Eagle Street where they reused part of a wall because that wall was probably only 20, 30, 40 years old. They, they wanted to change the facade of the house and do whatever they did. Why not reuse part of it? All right, so to start our Q&A off, um, we had started during our question session um, talking about a sale at the Architectural Parts Warehouse of a large amount of uh, parts from the Van Rensselaer Manor. And where did they end up going? Do, do we know kind of what's happened with all of that? Uh, well, the, the thing about the Van Rensselaer Manor house salvage that we didn't get into before. When they took the Van Rensselaer Manor House down, pieces went all over in Albany in 1897. But Marcus Reynolds reconstructed Van Rensselaer Manor at his alma mater, Williams College, and it was used as a fraternity for years and years and years and was taken down in the... 1973. 1970s. Um, and then stuff went somewhere, a barn somewhere, and then ended up at the warehouse probably... It, Historic Albany's Architectural Parts Warehouse um, in the late early 90s. Yeah. 90s. That was after the uh, the materials were salvaged, and uh, the dream was to uh, re-erect the house in the Albany area, although that was eventually abandoned. Right, but much of the material that was in the building in Williamstown was Marcus Reynolds' period stuff, because so much of the original material had found places in other Marcus Reynolds buildings around Albany. Not all of it was, but most, I don't remember anything that I saw at the warehouse um, that was, that was There was very little original. Uh, yeah, there was very little um, 18th century woodwork that was moved to Williamstown. It almost all went into Van Rensselaer family houses uh, in Albany and uh, as I mentioned before, down on Long Island. And um, I think the front door went to Williamstown originally, but then was uh, taken by a member of the family ultimately. Yeah, but the stuff, I mean, Marcus Reynolds was a pro, so the stuff that was put in the, the 
fraternity house was high quality. Yeah. It was good stuff, and it it looked right. Um, it just, but I don't know. I mean, it went all over the place. But it's Marcus Reynolds stuff by and large. So in that vein, is there a way to identify um, whether mantles or things from Marcus Reynolds that he would have used? Um, even though they're kind of a, a typical style, is there a way to determine, okay, that was definitely from a Reynolds building unless, just by looking at it, unless there's some documentation that, oh yeah, we know it went there? I wouldn't say so. I mean, because he, he did, um, although he did uh, design in um, uh, neoclassical style and imitation of Philip Hooker's work, he also really got involved with a lot of the, the French Renaissance uh, uh, stuff. And so that kind of creeps in on a lot of the things. And he's very little different than a lot of architects for his, of his period in that respect. So, well, And that actually is a sort of a segue into one of the other buildings we had on our list that we, we didn't talk about. But um, Bride's Row, you know, when they were building Bride's Row, there's a federal revival mantles in various rooms. Most of them don't really look very federal. They're just kind of, you know, in that 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 vein. Um, but in the back dining rooms of two of them, I think whoever, you know, when those were done, and I can't remember the architect for that. I think it's it, Fuller and Wheeler. Right. Yep. They, they, there's mantles that are, look like genuine, um, and they're not high-style federal. They're kind of a low-style federal with a little reeded um, panel. Um, so I think those were salvaged from somewhere. Um, you know, it's around the time they were doing that sort of thing, um, and and they would have been interesting. But they ended up in the dining rooms. But there's there's two houses that that have this same mantle, um, and it may have been you know upstairs fireplaces from a house from from earlier that got torn down. Um, but you know, it, you can kind of tell what's what's real and what's n not real if you've looked at it long enough. An interesting story that that, that makes me uh, remember too is uh, in neighboring Troy, not in Albany, but in Troy, uh, there was a uh, mantle that was discovered uh, in storage in the 1980s, maybe something like that, in a building that was being emptied. And it had been boxed up in the 1870s, and it was an old mantle from the 1820s, I think. Um, and uh, during renovation of uh, the uh, Rensselaer County Historical Society's offices, they incorporated that mantle, which had been given to them in the meantime, uh, into uh, uh, one of their public spaces. Um, and, um, you know, if you, you can read stories, uh, just going back to uh, the earlier 19th century, uh, the Mantles very frequently were retained when houses were renovated or people moved to uh, to uh, new houses as a kind of a sentimental kind of gesture because, say, in the principal parlor, people would have fond uh, recollections of sitting around by the fire in those spaces. And so uh, an Albany example of that is... Uh, uh, the Tembrook Mansion, when that house was renovated in the late 1830s, uh, two of the better mantles were moved up to bedrooms on the second floor. And so um, the uh, majority of the mantles in the house are marble now and uh, date to the 1830s, but there are two 1790s wood mantles that are on second floor uh, bedrooms uh, right now, and they have been since uh, that time. While we're on mantles, uh, one of the questions is, um, was Marcus Reynolds' focus really just mantles, or did he incorporate quite a bit more um, that, than just mantles in a lot of his uh, designs? Um, staircases, sometimes uh, door surrounds, front door surrounds, that kind of thing, yeah. 
Mantles are, they're, they're the easiest easy. thing to reuse. Yeah. Um, I, I just thought of another one, uh, 327 State Street, which is a large 1871, I think it is, brownstone, enormous. I think it's 30 feet wide, mansard roof. Um, that one has three gorgeous um, Greek Revival um, black marble mantles. The two in the front parlors match, and the one in the back, um, there's a, a wing off the back that's an even more elaborate. Um, but that was, you know, it was done in the 1870s, but it was redone um, in, well, I, I believe it was the 20s. So those actually could be mantles from the, you know, hmm. the Alfred E. Smith, Some, yep. somewhere around there. But they, they, they're similar to the ones at, uh, the original ones that are still at uh, the Fort Orange Club, hmm. which there's more salvage there, the lights fixtures from City Hall when that burned. That's the only element that I, I know exists, unless you know of something in part because it burned, so there wasn't yeah. much left of the inside. But the old Philip Hooker City Hall that burned in 1882, one? In the early 1880s, um, the, the, the original uh, wrought and cast iron uh, light standards were moved up to right in front of the Fort Orange Club. And of course, Fort Orange Club also incorporates uh, some pieces from Keeler's uh, restaurant as well in, its, uh, in one of its um, I think the bar area. I was going to say, yeah. what do they have from Keeler? They have the bar from Keeler's, or I don't. I think it's it's paneling, it's paneling. and some um, paintings. I think. Yeah. The, the yeah. 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 The more you think about it, the more you remember. Yeah. Salvages everywhere. That's <laughs> why we have the parts warehouse, so everyone else can continue to enjoy architectural economical. salvage. Absolutely. <laughs> Who knew it was, you know, sustainability and green yeah. before its time. Uh, to go back to Brides Row, one of the questions was, was it built on a uh, brewery foundation? That's true. That's another one of those pragmatic. And, and there are buildings. Uh, I had a friend who was doing their kitchen over in the basement, and you could see what was definitely parts of older foundations um, with, with the newer brick and, and things. So that's, that's another one where... There, there are bits and pieces. You know, it wasn't like they were going to change the design of the houses to conform, but if there's a wall where you need it, why not use it? Mm -hmm. um, isn't the, uh, is it the Knickerbocker Apartments or also a former brewery? Yeah, they, they are. That's Amstel Brewery, brewery, isn't it? That yeah, got, Amstel Brewery, That, that exactly. got stuccoed over, mansard mm -hmm. roof on top, doesn't look anything like, you know, what it looked like as a brewery, but that that's a, you know, a, a larger redo. Yeah, I mean, if you walk around Center Square, so many of those buildings are second, you know, the second building on the site. Um, so incorporating portions of or materials from, you know, isn't terribly unusual. One, a, a minor retention of, a, of an architectural element is um, uh, something you can see in the basement of the federal courthouse building where the... Uh, the name plaque from Stanwix Hall is actually preserved in the basement uh, of that newer building. It's incorporated into the wall. Similarly, the, uh, the couple of the, the plaques from the uh, Albany City Hall. Yes, I was just going to say City Hall. Are, they are, are in the basement. They're in the level. basement. Yeah, yeah, they're also in a, in a hallway there. Yeah. It seemed a shame to get rid of them when the building burned, so they just stuck them on the wall. So if you read them, they don't make any sense in relation to the building you're in, but they're cool. On that, on that same line, too, there is uh, uh, a, a plaque that represents the New York State seal as of the early 19th century. That was in the earlier Hooker-designed building that was incorporated into the, uh, the present-day Capitol. That's another one. And the basement, too. 
That's not in a basement. That one is near one of the, I think it's near the million dollar staircase is where that one is. Actually, this is just, a, I know you have other questions, but you brought up the Capitol. <laughs> the, the house I grew up in, 141 South Pine Avenue, there was a stone in the front we used to refer to as the marble carriage mount. And I was showing a friend, this was 10 years ago now, and as we were approaching, we were 30 yards away, I said, well, it's not marble, clearly, I can tell now from that distance. I was like, and it's not a carriage mount. And looking at it, it's, it's an upside down, it's one of the capitals from what's now the Hall of Flags. You know how they have, it's like a Doric capital, but it has that weird star motif going around it? That's what it is, but it makes sense that when they stopped building under Fuller and shifted to Eidlitz and Richardson, there were pieces that they either had to take down to incorporate or that they made that never went in. Um, but if you drive by 141 South Pine Avenue, there's a capital sitting right there. And it's, it, you know, it's got the rough surface and the pintle hole, you know, to attach it to the next, but. So that's not really, it's sort of salvage, but it's been sitting there it's forever. It's almost salvage, yeah. I mean, it didn't quite make it. Well, it didn't go to the dump. You know, yeah. it didn't get used, it didn't go to the dump. And this re reminds me of, of two other buildings. One, I'm not going to remember its addresses, but it's in Arbor Hill. Uh, but um, there's a building on the south side of Livingston uh, near um, Lark Street, which incorporates uh, chunks from the earlier uh, New York State Capitol building. Um, I, oh, did, yeah. I did some work in uh, trying to track on it, and the site was owned uh, by, I believe, the same contractor who um, was responsible for taking down the building, although the building that's there now looks like it dates to the early 20th century, which would have been 30 or 40 years after the, the building was taken down. Um, so uh, that needs to be looked into more, but clearly it incorporates all manner of, of uh, building material from the earlier structure. So someone wants to know, how is all this information being cataloged since there are, you know, pieces of the Van Rensselaer Manor all over and New York State Capitals? We need to have a book now, obviously. Yeah, it's a verbal cataloging. That's why we've named as many addresses as we could. Yeah. As we can remember, at least, in intersections. Yeah. Well, I think you guys have a, a book cut out for you in the, <laughs> the near future. We'll give it to Tony since he has his firehouse book. Once he's done with that, we'll have to pass this along to the, the city historian, mm -hmm. see if he'll pick it up. Um, uh, we had uh, started talking about in, in the break there um, the State Street House. Is it 333, 323 that we were talking about with the three-story coal shed? So yes. how does that relate then to? Well, that's a, a, a little odd one. There's a, uh, it's a, it's a brownstone facade building from the 1880s. Um, I think it's an Ernest Hoffman building. But as I said earlier on Washington Park and and. State Street, a lot of the buildings are second buildings and they were little wood frame buildings. You know, the, the streets that were developed earlier, they're little, were often little wood frame buildings before. So like J Street, there weren't wood frame buildings there prior by and large, but State Street, almost all of them were little wood frame buildings. At one point, some of them still survived. There's three still um, on State Street. Um, but that one, instead of just tearing down the little wood frame building, they trucked it to the back of the lot and truncated it and made it a little shed because if also if you look at old uh, atlases of Albany, almost every building had a little coal shed at the back. So this was a coal shed, but it's it's the facade of a house. It's probably only 12 feet deep or something. They truncate it, but it's got part of the roof and the six over six windows and it's two stories, which it's is not terribly shed. useful for a coal shed. But so that's, that's an interesting one. It's the only one I know of where, you know, that very few of those coal sheds survive. 
um, but for it to have been the prior building yeah. is interesting. There were up until fairly recently, maybe 10 years ago, uh, on Livingston Avenue, a pair of early uh, 19th century wood frame houses, two stories tall, three bays wide, uh, that were built as a pair and were moved to the back of the lots when houses were built on the, uh, the front that were of better quality uh, at the end of the 19th century. Um, those uh, survived as, I don't know if they were tenant houses or what, they hadn't been lived in for a very long time when I when I got into them and they were taken down soon afterwards. So those were in the, the block um, uh, where the Myers house is uh, now and they were immediately to the, on lots immediately to the uh, east of it. Bill, earlier you'd referenced uh, a Dutch beam and the house in Bethlehem. Uh, what makes it Dutch and, and how did you recognize it as a piece of Dutch uh, timber framing? Uh, well, so... It was a federal period house, which would not have had the enormous chunky beams in the basement, but it was particularly noticeable, this beam. Dutch beams in finished spaces were incredibly smooth. I mean, they were, they were ads to be smooth. And in, unless you've got raking light or you're, you're, you're touching the side, they look like you know a straight edge. So it's a very taller than it is wide, Chunky beam. I'm, I'm gesturing now, but it, it, <laughs> I think it's 11 by 16 inches, which is far bigger than, than you would need for. Um, but this one had the a, a joint in it for a jamless fireplace, um, which um, the trimmer beams for a jamless fireplace that integrated into it. But what's most interesting about it is because a jamless fireplace was just a smoke hood. Um, and the smoke would rise, bump up against the, the wood, and then go out the flue. You can see on one side of that joint, there's no smoke marks, and on the other side, there's very distinct smoke marks. So, and you know, it was in the middle of a basement, not near anything that it incorporates. So it was very clearly a, a, a Dutch beam, and there were others like it, but without the, without the marks of the jamless fireplace. One of our last questions is, uh, what is being celebrated from the old Albany High School at the new School of Engineering uh, for the downtown campus? The former is at Philip Schuyler at uh, Lake and Washington that's being redone right now. Do we know if there's any bits of the old Albany Academy or old Albany High? I don't, I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> well, I mean, the, the, the building is... Well, the whole building's being rehabbed. Reused. Yeah. But there's a library that I've never seen, but I've heard that it was quite lovely. But I don't... I mean, they're not... My understanding is it's not a, a, a gut renovation in that they're getting rid of everything um, that was in there. Um, but but I, don't, I don't know much more than that. I know they have a preservation consultant on board. I, I believe Lacey Thaler, Riley Wilson is yes. handling that project. So, because we have all of the uh, window frames at the warehouse, the, the framing for the old windows with the, the pulleys that are almost as big as I am tall, which for anyone that can't see, I'm fairly short. Um, <laughs> so yeah, they've but yeah, I don't, quite I don't a bit. know too much about that, that project. All right. Well, I think that wraps up our evening, unless you gentlemen have anything else that you want oh, to Oh, I was uh, just thinking uh, one of the things that um, 
we didn't talk about, you were talking about windows. It made me think about uh, the reuse of stained glass windows uh, from churches. Um, and uh, there's a very long history of that in the city of Albany. There are, it's something like three and a half of the windows from the uh, Dutch Reformed Church that sat in the middle of uh, State Street and Broadway still survive. They're not incorporated into buildings now, but um, they uh, had been uh, reincorporated into buildings, uh, one into the Van Rensselaer Manor House. Um, one of them is at the Met. I think uh, the Albany Institute has like one and a half of them, and one I believe is still in a private collection. But these are uh, early 18th century stained glass windows that uh, were donated by uh, prominent families in the city of Albany. Uh, later, later churches uh, such as St. Uh, John's in uh, downtown, um, uh, there are some... Um, windows that have been reincorporated into a later church. And uh, this has actually become a lot more common as a number of churches have closed. A lot of the windows have been salvaged and there's like a secondary market for, for stained glass windows and they get reincorporated. Same thing with, um, I mean, the Catholic Church has a, a kind of an inventory of, uh, of old altars and windows and things like that that they take out of buildings that they, that they uh, decommission and uh, they're offered to... Uh, uh, congregations when they're renovating or or building new. Yeah. Anything that's small and aesthetically pleasing that's easy to reuse, but you mentioned First Church Albany. First Church, when they moved, they moved their weather vane mm -hmm. um, to their new location, which is the oldest rooster weather vane in America. Um, right now, you can see it from the outside, but it's a reproduction, but it's almost exact. But if you go in the church, they, they have it in a glass case. And the pulpit um, they have, too, as well. They do. Yeah, that, that's true. They move that 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 as well. Because, again, it's aesthetically pleasing and easy enough to move. I mean, that that's almost a piece of furniture, but um, weather vanes. And in, our, I think it was our last talk. Oh, no, it's the talk with Ian Stewart that we gave where um, uh, Washington Irving salvaged two weather vanes for Sunnyside, mm -hmm. um, one from the Vanderheiden Palace in Albany on State Street and one from the, uh, it's reputed to be from the Queeman, the Arianchi Queeman's house. Um, and I believe one of them may still be in place um, at, what's it called, but I don't think they both are. But anyway, mm -hmm. that's just a, you know, an easy element to salvage and looks nice and yeah. you can move them around. Well, thank you all for joining us this evening. Uh, before we wrap up, I'd like to quickly thank Discover Albany for funding the recording of this podcast and Bill and Molly for all of your time that you spend on this program and the countless others that Historic Albany is constantly asking you to do for us. So we do greatly appreciate it. Um, more information about Historic Albany Foundation and the wide variety of programs that we offer now and all the time, whether it's at Moby Dick Book Club or Hard Hat Tours or whatnot, um, of some of the, the buildings that are under construction right now in Albany, like the uh, restoration of the Van Austrian Radliff House. There'll be Hard Hat Tours of that beginning over the summer. Uh, so you can find all that information at our website, www.historic-albany.org. Thank you all again for listening and have a good night.